Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. I'm Landon. And we have another really exciting episode today about a topic that everybody continues to discuss, and that is LDS church finance. We did an episode, was it last week, Landon? God, it's a blur. Yeah, about um, the SEC ruling and the fine against the LDS church. And we sort of went through um, and aggregated data on what uh, faithful uh, members of the church were saying about this situation. And that was extremely interesting to go through. If you want to take a look at that, you can look back through our library. But we also realized in collecting these comments um, that we feel like faithful members were probably asking questions to the church itself, because I don't feel it can be a coincidence, but on March 10th, um, just a week ago, the church actually published um, a topic essay um, on their website um, called Church Finances. So we feel like that is probably because a lot of faithful members and other people were like, what is going on? And of course, they're going to approve sources, the church website, to find out what is happening with church finance. So we thought we would dissect that essay called Church Finances and see if we could shed a little light on the topic. What is going on? And so Landon, of course, our heavy hitter when it comes to research, is going to help us dive right in. Yeah, so this is a standard church PR response. Whenever anything happens, they, uh, you know, the first presidency, real leaders don't ever come out and say anything. In fact, uh, remember what they said at the end of the, at the end of the last one? We consider the matter closed. Closed, yeah. They're not going to ever discuss it again. So then they turn it over to the lower level people and say, put out a press release, put out whatever we need to to make this go away. And that's exactly what they've done. They've put out an essay, uh, a topics essay called uh, Church Finance. And so uh, I saw this come out and I started reading through it. And it it's just like a church, uh, his, like the history uh, essays, the church uh, history topic essays that they put out, because as you read through it, it reads just like one. You start seeing those little weasel words that they always use in their in their essays where you say, okay, they're saying something here that uh, they're saying it in a nice way, but something's not right here. And you can tell when you read it, let's dig in right there and see what they're doing. So we decided let's go through the church history finance, the church finance essay, and let's see what's true and what's not. So uh, we put together a little slide presentation here. I'm going to pull that up, uh, and we'll try to, uh, for those who are just listening, we'll try to uh, talk about it. But we're calling this LDS Church Response to the SEC Fine Debunked. And uh, if we go to the first thing here, it's the church. I've actually taken a screenshot of the essay. Uh, it's located on the church website, uh, it's under the church history topics, and it's under, uh, as you can see over there on the left, there's a bunch of topics, uh, several dozen topics, but church finances and is the one that just so came far, out. So far, sorry to interrupt you, Landon, I don't see it yet. Is oh, it my screen or? Yep, I need <laughs> Wait, to. is it so secret and sacred that we can't even show it? That's, that's right. I need to get to the uh, share screen first. That's right. Let's so, share the screen. Exactly. That's right. So, While you're finding that, I'll tell you something funny when you talk about weasel words. I was talking to RFM and he said another uh, thing to look for in essays like this is when they use the word thus. The more times the word thus is used, the weaker the argument. <laughs> I thought that is very true. You can really see that in a lot of things that they write. So, okay. Okay, there's our title, LDS Church Response to SEC Fine 
debunked. There and, we go. And 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 he's exactly right. And I think uh, whenever we see, whenever they say the church did this like other churches or like other organizations, whenever they try to justify why they're doing something, uh, that's usually response. That that's usually an indication that what they're doing isn't really that normal, and they're trying to make it sound normal. Uh, as like to what everybody does it right like everybody say, does everybody it this does is not it, unusual right. nothing to see behind the curtain move on um so so here's a, a a picture of the church finance essay so you can go online and look it up uh if you just type in church finances lds uh, uh you should be able to find it uh, on their website so we're going to actually read the entire essay uh we're going to break it up into parts uh we've got paragraphs uh, Rebecca's going to read it. Uh, I have highlighted some of the weasel words or some of the uh, places where we're going to focus on. Uh, so as you as she reads it, when you see the highlighted sections or the sections she's going to emphasize, we're going to we're going to dig into those areas a little bit as we as we go through. But before we get started, um, I want to go uh, and, and kind of give a little bit of a history behind churches and churches' requirements to report through uh, the, the tax code. And this is through the United States, which we know the church mainly operated in the United States for almost most of its existence. Um, so churches uh, starting in, in, in uh, 1943 is when Congress required uh, uh, through the Revenue Act of 1943, they introduced a requirement that tax exempt organizations had to file an annual return that showed their gross income, their receipts and their dis disbursements. However, they exempted religious organizations at that time. So all charities had to submit uh, a, a, a return showing what they did, but religious organizations did not. But over time, charities weren't always as honest as they should be. And so Congress started getting concerned about this. And so in 1969, they, they re-looked at it and uh, they introduced the Tax Reform Act of 1969. And the House introduced a version, and the House version completely eliminated the religious exemption to the filing requirement. So churches were going to have to file just like any other organization, and they were going to have to make their uh, donations would, would have to be, uh, they'd have to disclose those. Well, religions didn't like that. So when the version went to the House for the House to reconcile it, uh, the House had testimony and the all the religious groups went and wanted to testify in front of Congress and try to get it changed. So the LDS church sent BYU president, uh, Ernest Wilkinson, uh, to make his argument for why churches shouldn't have, why churches should remain uh, free from the re requirement to disclose uh, on their taxes. And the LDS's view was that it would be extremely burdensome and costly to universities and churches to, to file taxes and that there would really be no offsetting revenue to the government because the colleges and universities and churches are tax exempt. So they're basically saying, why should we go through this whole process of, of providing all of this information when we're tax exempt, you're not gonna make it get any more money anyway, why should we do this? Well, that's kind of a lame argument to me because you know, the, the little tax, the, the little Boy Scout troop had to pay, had to file this. The, exactly. the PTA board had to file this and they don't have billions of dollars in trusts like the, like the universities do. Of course, in 1969, BYU probably didn't have near as large a one, but still 
they have you know hundreds of full-time employees who could fill out these returns whereas you know little organizations had to do it and and it wasn't burdensome for them but it was for the church so that was the church's argument the catholics took a different approach the the Cath the catholics argued that look we aren't asking everyone in the public to donate to our to our cause we're only asking our members to donate and because we're only asking our members to donate we should only be answerable to our members we shouldn't have to disclose to the public there's no public reason for the public to know how much money we have or what we control because it's none of their business it's not public money um so that was their first argument the other one was um that uh requiring any information uh for for churches to provide information to the government violated separation of church and state and and it wasn't appropriate for uh, the government to do that so all the pressure from the different religions uh came against congress but the 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 last thing that was argued was Congress hadn't pointed to any compelling reason to alter the requirement for churches to report. They said, why are you trying to change this? There's not a problem. Nobody has taken advantage of this. There's no, there's no churches that are taking advantage of this and doing anything wrong. So why are we trying to change it? And in the end, the, the uh, Senate version won, and uh, religious organizations continue to be free from having to report uh, their, their, uh, donations and their uh, their receipts and their disbursements. So the church does not have to report. That's something we need to point out. What they're doing is perfectly legal. There is no requirement for them to ever report anything. However, most churches have found that it maximizes the donations if they do report to their members. The difference is the LDS church has decided that it's that it can be more uh, fruitful, I guess, to not disclose. And the reason they can get away with it is because of this belief that the prophet is called of God and is led of God. And because they have so, because they put their faith in the leadership that other churches don't. Other churches say, well, these are men, they can fall, you know, they can make mistakes, Fallible, they can be infallible. greedy. <laughs> so we wanna make sure that our, our money's going to a good place. And if they can show us it's going to a good place, we'll donate more. If we can see the results, we'll donate more. Yeah, LDS and that makes complete sense. I have a couple comments on that, if I could yeah. just take a second. So my first thought is when you talk about um, going to Congress and the Senate and they say, we don't see any reason that this would ever be a problem, I say yet. I mean, they're supposed to enact laws that can protect from something in the future happening. And so just the fact that it hadn't happened yet doesn't mean that, it, well, as we now know, hindsight, that it was going to happen. So that's kind of, that to me is um, very short-sighted that you wouldn't see that there would be be a day where, of course, back then you probably couldn't see the, tele, the rise of the televangelist and you know, what it would all become. But I, I think that's interesting that they just said, ah, oh, no reason to do it. And my other thought on what you were saying about transparency, um, as part of my faith journey, I went to all kinds of different churches and I was really surprised and pleasantly surprised that um, they would have slideshows at the beginning and literally almost the first slide was always, 
here are our finances, you know, and this is in Utah. I don't know if maybe they're making a, you know, an obvious comparison, like we're going to put this up on the board, but they showed everything. This is how much money came in this quarter. This is where it's all going. You know, it was right there. So you're absolutely right. The members, they, they want that, you know, they sort of require that they expect that um, because they know that their leaders are simply men. And you're right. The LDS faith, we have a different point of view on our top leadership. So interesting, I thought. And, and the word you said there, transparency, that's that's important because reporting and transparency are two different things. The church does report its finances to its members. Every general conference, somebody gets up there and let's see, what are the words they say? I've got it right here. They say, um, in all material respects, contributions received, expenditures made, and assets of the church have been recorded and administered in accordance with appropriate counting procedures, approved budgets, and church policies and procedures. That's their report. That is a report. It means absolutely nothing, <laughs> but it's a report. And so you, report. you can report and it means nothing by hiding things or putting them in and, and putting them in different buckets every year and moving them. So you can't track anything. And then there's transparency where you make it so people can actually track it and see where it's going and account for it. And so there's there are two different things. So when we talk about reporting and transparency, they can be two different things. And we need to we need to keep that in mind uh, when we when we look through it. So so the, the, the question is, has the church ever reported on its finances? And the answer is yes, they have. Um, there's been a couple times, a couple periods in the church's history where they have reported on their finances. The first period was fairly early in the church, 1832 to 1838. Uh, the bishop of the church, Edward Partridge, we're told, gave a public accounting of church finance uh, during a church conference, which he did uh, repeatedly until 1838. Uh, they also, in 1877 to 1883, so after, Brigham Young did it. Once in a while, Brigham Young would give a report, but it was never anything that was repeatable. John Taylor saw this and decided, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm, I'm gonna try to continue this. And so for six years, John Taylor gave an annual financial report, uh, but he discontinued this when they started facing the uh, anti-polygamy campaign. Uh, and then again, for quite a while, the church in 1915 to 1959, they started reporting um, uh, the, the church's finances. And uh, one thing I found as I started to, to study this was there was always a reason when they stopped reporting or when they started reporting. And, and I've listed some of these here, but we're going we're gonna to dig into those deeper a little bit later in here. But the church Can I never ask one just question about sure. when you say reporting, let's make clear what that is. You mean standing up in front of a congregation, a general conference, and saying out loud, this is how things stand in the church. Is that what we're saying by that? Reporting? That's what we're saying. This was okay. in general conference. They would okay. give read out the numbers. They would actually give numbers uh that you could, you know, and give at least an overview of the financial standing of the church. So you knew that they were you know, oh, we've got money or we're, you know, we're a little, uh, we're not doing so well, or we're, you know, we're doing okay. Uh, they, they'd give those numbers and it would be in general conference. So they, they did report uh, for a time. Uh, but as I, as I was studying it and I started looking at these dates, I started saying, wow, every one of these dates, when they stopped reporting, there was something that was associated with it that made them stop reporting. And, 
in a couple of cases, when they started reporting, I found, why did they start reporting again? And I found a reason why they would start reporting. And it was never, to be honest, with the membership of the church. It was almost always to hide something from the membership of the church that they would that they would stop reporting um, on things. So we'll go through that as we get a little bit uh, deeper into the uh, church uh, the church finance essay. So let's get started. Let's go ahead and let's get dive into the uh, essay. And we're going to have Rebecca start reading, and we'll clue in on a couple of things here as we uh, as we get into it. So. Excellent. And I'm going to read from a copy that I printed out because I need big lettering. So <laughs> here we go. All right. Um, and we're going to read up to there. All right. So this essay is called Church Finances. From the earliest days of the Restoration, Revelation outlined aspects of the church's mission that would require temporal means, including caring for the poor, publishing scriptures and other church materials, and building houses of worship. Joseph Smith followed revelation as well as then current business models for financing these important endeavors. Subsequent church leaders followed this same pattern, adapting church finances to meet the changing needs of the church. Over time, the church has experienced seasons of financial distress, as well as seasons in which it was able to build reserves. Revelations in 1831 established the Law of Consecration and Stewardship, which instructed church members to devote their property to further the Lord's work and alleviate poverty. These revelations also established the office of bishop to receive and distribute consecrated properties. Joseph Smith and other leaders also followed revelations, advising them to manage the church's mercantile and publishing activities through an entity called the United Firm. Now, that is a name I have never heard, the United Firm. I am very curious to find out more about that. It, it is fascinating. We're going to talk about the United Firm. Uh, but first, I want to talk about a couple things here. Uh, I, I, I failed to highlight one of the weasel words in here. Um, whenever you start reading, you see that they talk, they said that he followed the then current business models for financing and endeavors. Uh, whenever they try to make it sound like, yeah, this was just normal, uh, you know, business models for the day. If we remember, the church was established in April 1830. Uh, you see, I highlighted there, 1831, they established the Law of Consecration and Stewardship, which instructed church members to devote their property to further the Lord's work and alleviate poverty. The Law of Consecration was basically you give what you have to the church. I don't remember that being a current business model in the 1830s for people to give everything they had to the church and then the church give whatever they needed back. Uh, additionally, to say that they devoted their property to further the Lord's work, that might be the case if you want to say, you know, that Joseph Smith's, uh, you know, building Kirtland, building a temple, establishing a mercantile, building a printing office. If you want to, all of his endeavors were the Lord's work, then yes, that, that property was used to, to do that. But to alleviate property, most of the saints in the early church were very poor, and they remained very poor. They never came out of poverty. And in fact, giving to these into these uh, schemes never brought them out of poverty. In fact, if anything, it put them further into poverty. And we'll learn about that a little bit with the United Firm. So as you mentioned, what is the United Firm? Well, the essay just leaves it at that, moves on to the next paragraph. 
I said the same thing. What is this United Firm? So I went and looked it up on the church's website. And believe it or not, this is what the church's website answered for what the United Firm is. It says the United Firm was an administrative organization that oversaw the expenditure of church funds between 1832 and 1834. In March 1832, the Lord commanded Joseph Smith to establish this organization in order to coordinate the literary and mercantile establishments of the church in both Ohio and Missouri. Joseph convened a council of high priests in April 1832 in Missouri for this purpose. At the council, Joseph received another revelation indicating that he, Sidney Rigdon, Newell K. Whitney, Edward Partridge, Sidney Gilbert, John Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, W.W. Phelps, and Martin Harris would be part of the organization. So he receives an organ he receives a revelation telling him to establish this organization to coordinate all of the church's business, the mercantile business, the company store, the church store that's going to sell to all the people uh, moving into Kirtland and moving into Jackson County, Missouri. And who did? Then he gets, they get there to organize it, and he, he receives another revelation. Uh, it's going to be <laughs> us. We're going to be the leaders of this. Uh, no surprise there. Is this revelation recorded anywhere? Is it in the DNC? Is it, I just literally have not heard anything surrounding this at all. I, I believe it is from the DNC. Okay. Uh, I'd have to look that up. I, I know it okay. definitely comes at, as we get further down, it says what sections it's in. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, so, so they get these men together, and then uh, it, 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 they, they say, okay, we're the men who are in charge. Then the revelation goes on. You know, as he's getting the revelation, the revelation further explained that these men could use a portion of the collected funds for their own necessities, and any remaining funds would be used for church purposes. They wait, were wait, responsible— wait, 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 wait. For the wait, firm's wait, 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 debts. wait, remaining funds like remaining their necessities funds. were first. So first came the their necessities, then came the church purposes. However, they were responsible for the debts of the firm um, because mm -hmm. they were the, the leadership. But what could go wrong? I mean, all the money comes to us and the church gets it last. So, uh, you know, we'll take we'll take charge of this. The nine men appointed to the United Firm each had a spe specific stewardship. Six were stewards over Revelation, a group that came, became known as the Literary Firm, and oversaw the church's publishing operations. Partridge and Whitney were the two bishops in the church, and Gilbert was an agent to Partridge. Together, these three managed church storehouses in Ohio and Missouri. In 1833, two additional members were called. Frederick G. Williams and John Johnson were added to the firm, both again by Revelation. Williams, a member of the church's governing presidency, had large land holdings in Ohio, as did Johnson. Their holdings became resources of the United Firm. That's a little convenient. Uh, oh, they donated land as part of this to become a part of the United Firm Managing Partnership. And so this, basically, God said, we want these two men. They're very thrilled to be called. But then, of course, as these founding members, they need to give many of their resources. You hear this so often. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Uh, the, the church started this very early. They started doing church finances this way. Uh, so for two years, much of the church's business was done through the United Firm, including the purchase of property on which the house of the Lord in Kirtland would be constructed. 
When the saints were driven from Jackson County, Missouri in 1833, the church lost two vital components, uh, Phelps Printing Office and Gilbert store Storehouse. In addition, the United firm had debts from the purchase of goods for the storehouses, a new printing press in Kirtland, and land for Kirtland's development. So what happened actually is that the two rich guys donated the land for the temple, and then the United firm bought up the land all around the temple, and then they started selling that land to all the immigrants that were coming in at exorbitant prices in order to make money off of it. And so they bought up and, and started developing the land in Kirtland. Uh, and so on April 10th, 18, so as they did this, they became, uh, they, they got themselves into a lot of debt. Um, on April 10th, 1834, members of the United Firm in Kirtland decided to dissolve the organization. And a few weeks later, the United Firm ceased to function. So this was a revelation to set it up. And God had a revelation of who should be in it. But as soon as it got into debt, ah, we all vote now. Nah, we don't want this anymore. There wasn't a revelation to get rid of it. It was, oh, we're all in debt. We, the, the men just said, ah, let's get rid of it now. We're There's done. We're done. No revelation to get rid of it. <laughs> Instead, they passed it off to the Kirtland High Council, who assumed the role of governing the, the mercantile. This last paragraph, I just, uh, I, I, I had to actually laugh as I started to read this because this sounds exactly like what they were doing with the SEC and the shell companies and the people that they were putting in charge of it. It says, in some editions of the Doctrine and Covenants, the United Firm was called the United Order, and code names were inserted in the place of the members' names. In addition, language about the firm's purpose was changed so that it referred more generically to caring for the poor. This was done to protect the identity of the firm's members and to keep its purposes confidential. This is from the church's website. In other words, they tried to make it sound like, ah, oh, we're doing this to help the poor and the needy so that no one really knew what they were doing with the United Firm and what this whole organization was about. And, so and doesn't that say, because they said, um, we're going to say generically we're caring for the poor to cover up our actual confidential purposes. So therefore, or thus, as Arvin would say, <laughs> their purpose is not to care for the poor. That's their smokescreen. Oh my goodness. We see them doing exactly what they've been doing with the SEC. They, they, they don't want you to know who's in charge. They want to keep the purpose hidden. They want to, they don't want anyone to know what they're doing with the money. This goes back to the very earliest parts of the church that this is that this is happening. This is 1832 to 1834, the first four years of the church's existence, and they're already doing this type of church finances. But reading the church essay, they make it sound like, oh, we're doing exactly what everybody did. This is normal business operations, and and it's just not true. Uh, and and the United Firm is is a perfect example of how the church has always conducted its finances uh, in this. So, okay, let's move on to the next. Uh, let's move on. And I would be very curious to hear from our viewers in the comments if they have heard of the United Firm before, because that was something that was absolutely new to me. Not surprising, but still new. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next one. Okay. Um, like other churches in early America, Latter-day Saint leaders made use of financial tools such as promissory notes, 
bills of exchange, loans, stocks, and bonds. In 1836, in Kirkland, Ohio, church leaders established the Kirkland Safety Society, a banking institution funded by the purchase of stock. The purpose of this institution was to expand Latter-day Saints' access to capital and to fund church objectives. Unfortunately, a financial crisis in the United States and Britain in 1837, depleted bank reserves, disrupted land sales, and led to the collapse of numerous banks, including the Kirkland Safety Society. Two revelations in 1838 marked a change in the church's approach to funding its operations. They emphasized the importance of tithing as a means of financing the work of the church and instituted a council to oversee tithing expenditures, which became known as the Council on the Disposition of the Tithes. Something else I have not heard of. It sounds like something out of Harry Potter almost. <laughs> it's just, it's just, the Council of the Disposition. Of the, yeah, that's very interesting. Wow, I'm learning so much. Well, they they start this this these paragraphs out with some of those weasel words again. Uh, so they start out and they say, like other churches in early America, um, and then yeah. they go on to say that they use financial tools such as promissory notes, bills of exchange, loan stocks, and bonds. That that sentence in and of itself is probably true because uh, we'll go into that in just a minute. Uh, that's how that's how everyone had to interact in early America because there wasn't a a, a, a national bank. The country didn't produce currency. Right. Uh, the way they did it was local banks would make promissory notes and everybody had to use those promissory notes. But then they go on to make it sound as if, you know, the church set up its own bank called the Kirtland Safety Society and that that they make it sound as if that's standard practice for churches of the day. And that's simply not true. I looked through, I could not find any other church that created its own bank. I, I couldn't find it. I, I, I can't say for sure that no other church did it, but I could not find where other banks set up their own, where other churches set up their own bank, printed their own money, financed their own operations. I, I just couldn't find that. Um, so that's the that's the first uh, little tidbit. The second part of that is the very thing that they call it a banking institution funded by the purchase of stock. Um, the Kirtland Bank was not a bank. They never got a charter. It was illegal from the beginning. It was never a bank. And we'll go into that in a little bit, uh, but they call it a bank here. And we know in fact, that it was not a bank. It was not a, a legally run bank. It's like the church likes to do in so many things. There's a law and they skirted around it and chose to ignore it. Um, and then the, in, here in the paragraph, they talk about uh, the, the financial crisis of 1837 and that that's what caused the crash of, of the bank. And uh, we'll look at some things here that show that that's just not the case, that uh, the bank was in trouble before the financial crisis happened. And then uh, I just highlighted the 1838, that they received two revelations in 1838. Well, the reason they had to receive two revelations in 1838 is because the revelation to set up a bank in 1836 had completely failed and uh, the church was completely at ruins. And so now they get received another revelation. So this is eight years into the church. We've already had a revelation on, uh, you know, the, the, the first revelation was the law of consecration. Then they set up the United Firm. Now they've set up the Kirtland Bank. 
And now they've had a revelation to set up uh, tithing as the as the way to fund the church. So eight years and four different revelations as to how to fund the church. Uh, we kind of start seeing how church finances may not necessarily be so much through revelation. Well, so God was working it out. God was working it out. It was nothing they were doing. They were simply the conduit for the revelation. And God was trying out different methods. That's all. Trial and error. The same trial and error. So let, let's just have a little bit of a of a of a history lesson here. So economics in the at, at this time, you know, the the Revolutionary War is over. You have a young, weak central government. The states are all uh, operating on their own. They all have their own banks. There's no central banks. So the colonies issued their own currency from their own banks. And it really was a, a system of trust. So a bank would produce these banknotes like these shown here, were, were, and it would have a certain value on it. And that value was backed by gold or silver. So the bank would hold the gold or silver. They'd give out a promissory note. And the promissory note, then the people, instead of having to carry gold and silver, they could, they could trade in these notes. But they knew that, okay, I can take this note to the bank and I can get gold and silver for it, or someone else will take it from me because they trust that they can take it to the bank and get gold and silver for it. So but it was the, a direct exchange. You have the note, there actually is gold or silver in the bank. That's Very un unlike what we have today, but back then that was it. You could go it, to the exactly. bank and get Exactly. So it's a system that. built on trust and, and money today is built on trust. You know, we trust that the U.S. government will back it up. Um, and, and so it, it's completely based on, is that bank have a, a reputation that I can count on? Do I trust that bank that I can take that currency and that I can get, get money out of it? And so that's, that's when they say, you know, like other churches in the day, they, the, the church worked in the, using these promissory notes. They did. These were the notes that they had to use. So they're, there's a partial truth here. Yeah, they they had to work with these promissory notes just like everybody else did. Um, the difference is they decided to set up their own bank. And so what they did is um, there, there's a there's a little bit of a history behind why they set up this, this bank. First off, in 1832, when they moved to Kirtland, Smith's power was being challenged at this time. You had Oliver Cowdery and Hiram Page who had their own seer stones who were receiving their own revelations. And Joseph had to put this down. And in order to do so, he came up with a solution. And that solution was, let's build a temple where we can get special endowments and revelations from the Lord. And so I'll build the temple and they'll have to come to me to get these special endowments and revelations. So he was able to get these people to donate the land for the temple. And then he borrowed $70,000, up to $70,000. It ranges from forty dollars to seventy. dollars the different calculations, to build the temple. To fund the temple, they bought up all the land around the temple and developed it. That's what the United Firm did. They bought up all the land, they developed it. Then the lots were sold to the immigrants at exorbitant prices. So these immigrants that were being recruited to the church, they were moving in. Under the law of consecration, they were supposed to be given the land to alleviate the po poverty, but instead they were sold the land at high prices. Well, if the church didn't have any money, the, the people moving in didn't have any money, so they had to go work for the non-Mormons in the area to earn the money to pay for their, for their land. So what ended up happening is the church became very land wealthy, but they had no capital. They had no money that they could distribute. Uh, so they decided we're going to form our own bank. 
so they sent uh, uh, they sent one of the members off to get uh, the plates uh, to get to he went to Philadelphia to get the plates to make the the money, um, and so he went off to get the plates. I, I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was Orson Pratt. Uh, Orson Pratt was set off to get the plates. Uh, meanwhile, uh, one of the other members was sent to uh, get a charger from the Ohio legislature to set up a bank. The problem was at this time, because money was was uh, easy to reproduce, there was a lot of counterfeiting went on. People would counterfeit these notes and then pass them and then people would would take them. And then when they'd go get the try to get the money, they'd say, this is counterfeit. Uh, this isn't our, our money. You don't get the gold. And they'd be taken advantage of. So counterfeiting was very popular in this time. And one of the things our book club ran into as we were studying uh, early Mormon history, we kept running into counterfeiting. Everywhere we read, everyone was kept talking about counterfeiting. And we said, what is this about counterfeiting? Why do we keep running into this? So we actually read a book. Um, it was by um, Kathleen Melanakis called Secret Combination, Evidence of Early Mormon Counterfeiting, 1800 to 1847. And if you go to the Good Book Club, uh, we have a podcast where we did the book club that we read that. It's a, it's a really fascinating podcast on, on counterfeiting. But because of counterfeiting and also a thing called wildcat banking, where uh, banks were setting up banks, but they didn't have the gold and the silver to back them up. And so they were failing a lot. And that was called wildcat banking. And there was so much of this going on that the Ohio legislature said, we're not give, you, 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 we're going to be very careful about who we give a bank charter to. And so the LDS, the, the, the LDS church, the Mormon church went and asked for this bank charter and it was denied. They kind of, you'll read things and they say, oh, it was discrimination. It was not discrimination. I, I think there were like 37 requests that year and 36 of them got denied. Only one of them got approved that year for, uh, for uh, a bank to be approved. So they came back with the plates. They had the plates to make the money, but they didn't have a charter to start a bank. So Joseph Smith did what he does so much. He just ignored the law. He said, okay, well, I won't set up a bank. I'm going to set up an anti-banking bank. And you can even see, here's a picture in here. And I think you've got some of the money from the anti-banking bank. Uh, I or do. You don't I, have actual, but this is- I, uh, No, some... no. I think some of it does exist. You can see it in church history museums yes. and places. But when our book club, the Good Book Club, read Kathleen Melanakis's book, um, I got some of this from the Nav back from Nauvoo. I ordered it. And so these are replicas. You probably can't see- too well but you know it's very interesting they had the plates and they were printing these and <laughs> tell them what they had to do because they accidentally printed it a little incorrectly <laughs> well what what happened is they they'd al they already had the plates and the plates said you know bank of kirtland or the kirtland safety society bank and you can actually see for those who uh who are, are watching this on video uh yeah. here in the upper left hand corner is the three dollar bill from it and you can see where it says the Kirtland Safety Society Bank. And if you look just off to the left on that $3 bank, you, $3 bill, you can see where it says anti-bank. They actually went in with a little stamp and typed anti-bank because they weren't a bank. So they had to type in, they had to put that little stamp that said anti-bank because they weren't a bank. Um, and so they produced this money 
And they started operating just like a bank. And they told all the members, you know, they received a revelation to put your money in this bank. And all the members started do, putting their money in. In fact, there were revelations that said this bank would eat up all the other banks of the world and be the standard of wealth for the nations and stuff like that. And so these poor people, these poor immigrants moving in, they don't know anything about banking in the United States. They're they're putting their money into the Kirtland Banking Society. Um, and so uh, if we look over here off, off to the right-hand side, uh, we see that this safety, this anti-banking company was illegal right from the start. First off, they sold stock, but they never incorporated. They never made a company in which they could sell stock, but they sold a lot of stock in this company. In fact, they sold $4 million worth of stock for a company that only had $20,000 worth of gold to back it. So they were way overcapitalized, which was the very definition of a wildcat bank. They were doing exactly why they didn't get a charter is what they were doing. Was, can also, I ask a question? Was was anyone uh, purchasing stock or being a part of this that was not a Latter-day Saint? Were the everyone else in the area going, oh my goodness, look what they're doing? Or were other people falling victim to this? I, I don't know. I think, I think uh, that you didn't have to be Latter-day Saint to buy it. And certainly in the Kirtland area, this was getting passed around as cash. So people would start accepting it. So there were definitely people who weren't LDS who were taking the money or accepting the money, uh, you know, in order to do that. A lot of the people who might pay, uh, you know, the employee, the non-members the, the non -members that were paying the employees uh, might, the employee might buy something from them and they might take this uh, as cash and then try to, uh, you know, go and get uh, the gold out and get value out of it. So it kind of uh, took over the whole area. It just yeah, it would have, had to be it involved because that was passed because it was one of the banks in the area. And until you lose trust in the bank. Um, but that that's one of the things we'll look at here in just a second, um, because the second thing they did is they printed these bank notes. And you can see this is a 10. This is a three. This there's a, a one. They were got the they one were a right here. Denomination. The one. Yep, that's a one. Yeah, they're illegal dominations because. In order to stop inflation, the Ohio uh, legislature said, we don't want you printing money in any less than $100 denominations because this became like play money. It was too, uh, there was too much of it. It started to flood the economy. So there was too much of it. So they said, you can't print in any smaller than $100 denominations. And the church was printing in, in too small a denomination. So it was against the law and the denominations they, they made. Uh, but the, the other thing was that the bank only lasted for one month. Um, it, it actually lasted in from 1836. It started in like November, December, 1836. But within a month, the bank declared that they would no longer give you specie for their bank notes. So if you brought it, you no longer got gold or silver if you brought in the bank notes. So in essence, the money was worthless when you brought it in. The thing is, they continued to pass out the notes, and what they did is they took it and they spread it out further away from Kirtland where people didn't know the bank was in trouble, and they'd buy horses with it, and then they'd take the horses and they'd sell it for other bank money, and then they'd go transfer that and get real money, get, get gold and silver for the real bank notes off of the horses that they sold, and so they continued to, to 
put the money out into the economy, even though they had no intention of backing the money. And, and so that so was calculated. They knew what they were doing. It was calculated. They were basically they laundering. Knew what they were doing. Okay. And so the bank actually stopped giving gold and silver for the notes before the crash of 1837, which affected so many of the other banks. So the church, this bank actually failed prior to the, the, the market failing in 1837. So that's just the excuse they're using. Uh, in fact, their stories told that uh, Joseph Smith uh, used to put the money in the bank, in the vault, and it was full of sand. And then they'd put the gold on top of it, the $20,000 in gold that they did have, they'd put on top of the sand. So it looked like they had a big box of gold when in reality, it was just gold on top of the sand. Uh, so there's, there's records of that uh, and stories of that being done. So the Kirtland uh, Banking Society was, was devastating to the church because almost all the members lost their money. And at the end, after it collapsed, they said Joseph Smith didn't have a friend in town. You'll, you'll, read, book, you'll, you'll read church accounts of this, and the church will say, oh, Joseph was just a clerk in the bank. When was Joseph Smith ever just a clerk in anything? And look whose name is signed on the on the money. Joseph Smith, just a clerk, is the one backing backing the money. Uh, you know, he he made sure he looked like a clerk because he knew that it was that it wasn't that, that the money couldn't be backed, and what he was doing was not what was not legal. Uh, so he made sure it looked like he wasn't the front man. Instead, he pushed Oliver Cowdery out there to, to do that. Um, so there's a couple other things that came from this. Um, Oliver Cowdery kind of escaped and went to, to Missouri, and, and Smith and Rigdon tried to escape as well to get out of Ohio, uh, but they were arrested for fraud, and they were both convicted and fined. Uh, they were fined $1,000 each for setting up this uh, uh, false bank, which is you know, in that day, $1,000 is pretty, pretty steep uh, fine. Um, as a result, uh, they excommunicated Oliver Cowdery. Uh, and one of the charges they excommunicated him on was counterfeiting. Surprise. Here comes that big word <laughs> counterfeiting that we kept reading about every time we kept saying, what is this counterfeiting? And why is everybody talking about counterfeiting? Well, um, let's talk a little bit about counterfeiting. This is something that if you haven't heard about, it's hard to believe. Uh, but counterfeiting is all over in early Mormon history. And until you start reading some books and some essays on it, um, there's never really a, a, a solid smoking gun uh, where they were found with, you know, here's the printing press and they were arrested for it. They always seem to escape uh, any uh, capture of that. However, there's some problems. And the biggest problem is, is that the church, this isn't a, a, a charge coming from outside the church. This is a charge that the church members are charging each other with. And so uh, there, there, once they got to Missouri, there was the formation of the Danite Secret Society. And the Danites produced what's called the Danite uh, Manifesto. And in the Danite Manifesto, the first presidency of the time, which was made up of um, of uh, Joseph Smith, uh, uh, Sidney Rigdon, and, and Hiram Smith, uh, they wrote uh, a, uh, in the manifesto, they, they wrote this. They said uh, that Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Lyman E. Johnson united with a gang of counterfeiters 
thieves, liars, and blacklegs of the deepest dye to deceive, cheat, and defraud the saints out of their property by every art and stratagem which wickedness could invent. You kept up a continual continual correspondence with your gang of marauders in Kirtland, encouraging them to go on with their iniquity, stealing, cheating, lying, instituting vexatious lawsuits, selling bogus money, bogus money meant counterfeit, and also stones and sand for bogus. This is the using sand and stone with gold mixed to make it look like it was money, in which nefarious business, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Lyman E. Johnson were engaged while you were there you are at this time engaged with a gang of counterfeiters, coiners, and blacklegs, as some of those characters have lately visited our city from Kirtland and told what they had come for. So they're, they're saying, we're here in Kirtland. These counterfeiters came from, from Missouri and told us that you are you took all of our money. You were counterfeiting while you were here. You're counterfeiting when you're there. You're lying and stealing and cheating with the saints. Why are they saying this? These are the these are the people we're told that are the first, you know, these are the witnesses, the three witnesses to the saw the plates of gold. They never counted. They're trustworthy people that we can count on. And yet Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon are saying, you guys are liars, cheaters, and counterfeiters. You're stealing from the people. This isn't the mobs. This is the first presidency accusing them of this. You and do not doing see that in conference today. Very often, people standing <laughs> up and saying at each other. <laughs> we need to see a little more of that, probably. Maybe so. <laughs> so the, the bottom line is, Joseph Smith was caught in this mess, and now he wants to blame everybody else for the financial situation, and he's trying to blame Oliver Cowdery. Likewise, Oliver Cowdery argues back and says, no, we aren't counterfeiting. Joseph is counterfeiting. And you're a counterfeiter. You're and a counterfeiter. You're a counterfeiter. And you're a counterfeiter. They're all pointing to each other as being counterfeiters. <laughs> so were they counterfeiting? Well, let's find out. Let's see if who was counterfeiting. Because remember, they excommunicate Oliver Cowdery, and he's now no longer in the in the in the church. So let's go on and we'll come back to the counterfeiting here in a little bit. All right. Boy, this is quite the rabbit hole, isn't it? This... <laughs> All right. Next section. Uh, beginning in 1841, Joseph Smith transacted business on behalf of the church as trustee in trust or the person legally responsible for the church assets. This was a common organizing model for many churches and other institutions at the time. After Joseph Smith's death, church members sustained the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles to dictate about the finances of the church until the First Presidency could be reorganized. During the remainder of the 19th century, the trustee in trust acted in concert with church councils to acquire property and transact other business on behalf of the church, invest in building Latter-day Saint communities, and fund the gathering of the saints to the North American West. For example, the church helped facilitate Latter-day Saint migration to the North American West by extending loans through the church's perpetual immigration fund. In 1877, in an effort to ensure careful and consistent accounting, President John Taylor organized an auditing committee that reviewed all transactions conducted under the trustee in trust. Okay, we see the weasel words again. 
This was a common organizing model for many churches and other institutions at the time. I'm not sure how many other churches had a trustee in trust that was <laughs> one man who seemed to control the entire town. I mean, he was the mayor. He was the general. He was he owned the businesses. He owned all the land. He owned everything. He controlled everything. He anointed himself as the king uh, with princes under him, under the Council of Fifty. That doesn't seem like a standard. I Yeah, there might have been a trustee and trust in some business corporations, uh, but not anything to the level that Joseph Smith was uh, appointed as, as trust and trustee to control that much property and never under the auspices of a church that uh, I, most all churches had, you know, groups that led the church, you know, there'd be a board of right, trustees, committee. not so, one, tr not one trustee who owned everything. Right. It seems control. like Joseph was wearing a lot of hats. Well, okay. Crowns and hats and <laughs> generals plumage. Yeah. He was doing a lot. He, he was. And, and I, I'm going to come back this first paragraph is packed. Um, we're, so we're going to come back to that. But I, I want to look at this one about extending loans through the church's perpetual immigration fund. Um, anyone who knows anything about the immigration fund, you know, the church would lend you money to get you to come out west. You know, all these people who were emigrating from England and other places in Europe, they'd give you the money, they'd loan it to you to come out. The problem is, once you got out there, you owed them and you had to pay all of this back. And so when people got out there, if they weren't, once they got to Utah and said, this isn't quite what I bought into, if they tried to leave Utah, the church would take everything they had before they could leave. And they'd, they'd make them leave basically penniless. They, they, they couldn't leave Utah without giving everything back to the church. And so it was really a way to entrap them. And there's stories about uh, Johnson's army coming, uh, and, and women who'd been, uh, you know, come out and then they were all of a sudden, uh, polygamous wives and they were trying to escape from their husbands and they got left with absolutely nothing. And they came running to the army going, help us, take us back. We have nothing. And, and men trying to leave and they'd have the, they'd try to leave with their property and they'd be stopped at the edge of town or they'd be chased down and their property taken back. Uh, because it was part of the church's property at that point. So the so immigration it was really fund, more sorry, it was more like being an indentured servant, basically. You borrowed was, the money, the loan, and then you had to stay there and build up that community. You could never leave. You couldn't leave. So it was it was helpful if you stayed a devote member, it was a helpful fund. But if you wanted to leave, it, it was it was just a weight around your neck. But I want to go to the top one here again, to this trustee and trust, Joseph Smith, and then later to Brigham Young. What kind of men were these? How trustworthy were these? These are the trustee and trust. So let's, let's explore a little bit about what kind of men they were. Let's go back to counterfeiting here a little bit. Um, so uh, Oliver Cowdery's gone. He, he's been kicked out of the church. So you would think if he was the counterfeiter that the counterfeiting would have stopped. Uh, in his book, uh, Counterfeiting in the Secret Service in the 19th Century America, David Johnson, uh, uh, the, the, the book's called The Legal Tender, David J Johnson states that St. Louis and Nauvoo, Illinois 
combined to create the second major production center in the nation for counterfeit money. Nauvoo, Illinois, the second major counterfeit production center in the nation for counterfeit. Who controlled Nauvoo, Illinois? That was completely a church run. It, the charter of the city was completely run by the Mormons. Nothing happened in Nauvoo without Joseph Smith's knowledge. There is no way anyone was counterfeiting in Nauvoo without Joseph Smith knowing about it and condoning it. Uh, there's just no way that that happened. Um, pr Professor uh, Stephen Mim included in Profile Nauvoo in his study, counterfeiters associated with the Mormon settlement at Nauvoo, Illinois, for example, attracted condemnation from their neighbors in the 1840s. The Mormons who had established an autonomous state within a state at Nauvoo, and anyone who studied Nauvoo history knows that, the Kingdom of Nauvoo is a, is a good book about that, probably tolerated counterfeiters in their midst and may well have had a hand in manufacturing bogus coin themselves. The attraction of high autonomous Nauvoo was understandable. Moreover, the Mormons had been accused of counterfeiting in the past, as well as other experiments that bordered on counterfeiting, including the Kirtland Bank debacle. And then from the Warsaw Signal counterfeits, there is a species of counterfeit extensively circulated in this community called Nauvoo bogus. They are half dollars dated 1828. They are pretty good imitation of the genuine coin, so good that some of our businessmen have been imposed upon by them. It is said they are manufactured in the city of the saints. So it had a counterfeit coin named after it, the Nauvoo bogus. Um, so they should be so proud. Yes, absolutely, that <laughs> they should. Um, so it doesn't end there. Um, we know that the Nauvoo public, the Nauvoo expositor was burned for what it, uh, you know, for what it uh, had published about polygamy, which led to Joseph Smith going to the jail, and and this led to the uh, uh, the downfall of the uh, his eventual uh, being killed in the jail. Um, but Joseph Smith ordered it to be destroyed, and when Governor Ford came and said, you know, what are you? Why are you burning down the press? Smith said it's that uh, the they were dissenters from the church and they were unprincipled, lawless, debauchees, counterfeiters, um, bogus makers, gamblers, peace disturbers. So he said they were making counterfeit. That's why I burned it down. Who were the? Who was it? It was William Law, the first counselor, <laughs> the first pre presidency was who who was the, the uh, Nauvoo expositor uh, publisher. So while he's in, in jail, in, in Liberty, John, they hear that, uh, that, that Governor Ford has ordered the, the uh, militia to come to Nauvoo. So John Taylor hides the type and the stereo plates from the, from the print shop in Nauvoo, from the church's print shop, and they were removed from the printing office, and he disguised himself so he would not be known and planned to cross the river to escape from Canada when word came that Governor Ford was coming to Nauvoo to investigate. Now, why would you hide the plates from the, from the printing shop unless they were something illegal that you were printing? 
Well, and I do have to say that the church has a history of hiding plates and finding <laughs> plates and digging up plates. It seems to be all about all kinds of plates. So this maybe shouldn't be too surprising. This is just incredible. Like the, this is just the twists and the turns. I don't think a lot of people realize this is what was happening. It, you really have to do some digging. This is just incredible. It, it's, a, it's an incredible story. When, when, when Governor Ford gets to Nauvoo, he charges the Nauvoo general uh, of the Nauvoo Legion, George Miller, with stolen goods. He said, stolen property has been traced to your city, and the owners who come to search were ordered away and fled for their lives. And there were those in Nauvoo that carry on a pretty large business in stealing. Ford said he suspected murder had been ordered by some of the Mormon leaders. He strongly threatened that if the depredations did not cease, the surrounding counties will take up the gun and you may be driven despite... Uh, uh, despite uh, of the state in the dead of winter. So he said what was happening was they'd go steal horses. They'd bring them back to Nauvoo because Nauvoo had the Nauvoo charter and it overrode the state charters. The state couldn't do anything about it. And anyone came to get their property, the sheriffs of Nauvoo would say, would chase them out of town. And the other sheriffs couldn't come into town. And so they were operating this business or that's what they were being accused of, of doing. That's why their neighbors hated them so bad. And the mobs were attacking them. You mean it wasn't persecution? It, it wasn't it really... religious persecution. It, it was, they were stealing from the neighbors. And, and it really, I mean, it's so organized. I want to say like organized crime. I mean, it really was like some kind of syndicate. It seems like just total control, especially in Nauvoo, their hands in all kinds of little businesses, ways to get revenue that that's exactly what it was and and if, if we go on we've all, we're all we all know this picture and for those that are listening it's the picture of the uh exit from Nauvoo in the middle of the winter where the covered wagons are crossing the river in the dead of winter and we know that the saints had to cross over and then they went into winter camp and many of them died and froze to death and we, we we're told they were chased out because the mobs were coming and they had to leave in the dead of winter and leave their property and their homes. Most of us don't know the true story of that. Um, the true story is that, uh, that the counterfeiting that was going on, um, law enforcement came into the city and tried to arrest Brigham Young and John Taylor for counterfeiting. And, they didn't recognize Brigham Young and, and that, and he was able to trick them and say, oh, yeah, he's down the hill. And then they, he took off and they weren't able to capture him. But uh, they went back and there was there was a group of federal marshals coming to Nauvoo to arrest Brigham Young on counterfeit charges. He had been indicted by a grand jury, as well as many of the Quorum of the Twelve for counterfeiting. And so they abandoned Nauvoo. Prior to federal troops arriving, they ordered them to leave Nauvoo and to cross out of the United States so they couldn't be arrested for counterfeiting. And that's why they were leaving the city. And you see on here, you know, this again, this isn't just uh, made up charges. William Smith, who is the brother of Joseph Smith and was patriarch of the church, um, he published that Brigham Young and the Twelve were thieves, murderers, and counterfeiters. This is Joseph's brother. This is Joseph Smith's brother, who is the patriarch of the church. These murderers and counterfeit. You just don't usually hear that in your gospel doctrine classes. You, you never hear of this. 
Now, William Smith was not a saint himself. He'd been excommunicated several times by Joe, by his brother Joseph, and uh, we'll see what he was. So all told, when we look at this, I've got this uh, most wanted uh, poster, but uh, oh, one, one thing before we get to that, it didn't end when the church got to Utah. They got to Utah, and they started making their own coin once they got to Utah. So we know they had a... a a coin press when they got to Utah, which means they had a coin press when they were in Nauvoo. Um, and they started making their own gold. And uh, they started selling it in California. It was made out of gold. But when it got to the assay office where they would weigh it, they found that it was 20% short of gold that they were supposed to have. Therefore, it wasn't worth what they were producing and saying that it was worth. Uh, they also uncovered a conspiracy by Brigham Young uh, that he was going to put out a half a million dollars in forged checks into circulation during the Utah War uh, to try to undermine the, the value of money and, and to help finance uh, the war there. Uh, so counterfeiting, check fraud, all of these things continued to, to follow them. So uh, this little uh, 10 most wanted poster, these are the, the people in the early church and this is the charges that have followed them. Now, some of these charges are not official charges that were made um, by the government, although many of them are. Uh, under Brigham Young was indicted by the grand jury. John Taylor indicted by the grand jury. Uh, but many of these were also made not by the mob, but by charges made by other members of the church. Uh, other leaders of the church uh, accused these people of this. So Joseph Smith, as you can see here, was charged with treason, bigamy, fraud, treasure digging, inciting a riot, damaging property, attempted murder, extortion, and he was convicted of illegal banking. Brigham Young was charged with counterfeiting, murder, and bigamy. John Taylor was charged with two counts of counterfeiting and bigamy. Harley P. Pratt, counter, two charges of counterfeiting, treason, murder, and bigamy. Orson Hyde, two counts of counterfeiting and receiving stolen goods. Porter Rockwell, murder times 100, um, <laughs> uh, attempted murder. At least. <laughs> yeah, with uh, Governor Boggs, and he participated in counterfeiting or was charged with it. William Smith, the brother of Joseph, was charged with counterfeiting, known for drinking and fighting, horse and cattle stealing and ruling, and, uh, and ru ruining virtuous females by the wholesale. <laughs> I want to know more about that. Good yes, heavens. he was a very interesting uh, man. <laughs> Heber C. Kimball, counterfeiting and bigamy. Oliver Cowdery, counterfeiting, stealing, cheating, lying, insulting, vexation, and nefarious business. And Sidney Rigdon was convicted of illegal banking. So this is, look at the first three there. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and John Taylor. These are the first three prophets of the church. And they were all indicted for illegal money operations. Yeah, this is the kind of picture that you would see in a stake center on the wall, you know, showing the <laughs> illustrious that you wouldn't see what's written underneath. I mean, this this really puts it in perspective right here. My goodness. Certainly does. So we'll move on to the next uh, essay and uh, I'll, I'll have you read that. Anti-polygamy laws enacted by the United States government in the 1880s targeted church finances, eventually disenfranchising the church and confiscating its funds and properties. 
fluctuating markets, and poor investments further depleted the church's remaining resources, presenting church president Wilfred Woodruff and Lorenzo Snow with significant debts. After the 1890 manifesto, President Woodruff worked with lawmakers and court officials to recover church property and transi transition much church-affiliated enterprises into private businesses, a process his successors continued. In 1899, President Snow called on Latter-day Saints to increase their commitment to tithing contributions, which in time helped return the church to financial solvency. In the early 20th century, church president Heber J. Grant and presiding bishop Charles Nibley, who worked previously as businessmen, incorporated church operations formerly administrated, formerly administrated over solely by the trustees under three entities. In 1916, the corporation of the presiding bishop was created to manage donations and expenditures for works of charity and for public worship, including local meeting houses. In 1923, President Grant established the Corporation of the President, which oversaw all other church assets used for religious purposes. He also founded the Zion Securities Corporation to manage remaining taxable and non-ecclesiastical entities and, if I turn my page here, properties. During this period, Bishop Nibley worked to bring church financial records in line with modern accounting standards. As the church's financial situation improved, church leaders began to supply up to 50% of the costs of building local meeting houses, leaving the remainder to local budgets. Financial policies implemented by President Grant remained largely intact until the 1960s. Okay. Um, so much packed into these couple paragraphs. <laughs> so... First off, uh, the church's remaining resources, uh, I didn't highlight this, presenting church presidents Wilford Woodruff and Lorenzo Snow with, with significant debts. All of this was related to the anti-polygamy. If you remember during polygamy, they were uh, going to repossess all the church's property. Even the temple uh, was repossessed. Uh, the, the feds went after them trying to stop the, uh, the polygamy. So uh, right, right off the bat, if you remember, Wilford Woodruff uh, went to jail uh, or was uh, pursued for breaking the law, for breaking the anti-bigamy laws, as well as Lorenzo Snow. Um, so let's look. Let's count up the church presidents now who have uh, law, you know, problems with the law. You've got jo Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, Lorenzo. Do we have any yet that have not been <laughs> arrested or had problems with the law? Not, not yet. I don't think. Not yet. So we're, we're up to five. We're up to five. I'm not even sure who the next one is. I think it's Joseph F. Smith, right? Uh, is the next one. But I like this little uh, th th where I highlighted after the 1890 manifesto. President Woodruff worked with lawmakers and court officials to recover church property and transition many church affiliated enterprises into private business. Doesn't this, uh, doesn't this sound a lot like what uh, the church claimed in the sec filing? Oh, we start, we've been working with the government to make, uh, you know, to, to find a solution to this as if they just voluntarily uh, stepped up and, and did the right thing that they brought it to everyone's attention and made it right. And it sounds like that's exactly what they're doing here. Oh, we we agreed to end polygamy. And now we're we work closely with the government to to convert the church's property into private uh, uh, businesses. 
Well, first of all, we know that in 1890, they did not end polygamy as they agreed to with the government, thus making the requirement for the second manifesto in 1904. And meant some of the marriages that continued after the 1890 manifesto were by the first presidency themselves. So again, we've got members of the first presidency lying to the government, doing what they want to do, all the while moving the property, taking the church property. And why would they move it into private business? Because if they moved it to private business, the church then couldn't confiscate it. So they're not doing this for their own good, or, or they're not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it so that the church property can't be confiscated if the government finds out they haven't stopped doing polygamy again. And we know that they haven't stopped doing polygamy. Um, so we go down to the next uh, paragraph there. Uh, in the early 20th century, church president Heber J. Grant and Charles Nibley. Heber J. Grant, remember that name. Uh, it, how's that song go? Remember the J? Or... <laughs> <laughs> that was Remember the F, yes. Having oh, remember been a, the a F. 15 okay. year primary pianist, uh, I could probably sing that if uh, put to the test. Okay. So yep, getting, we've got to remember the have F. To remember Remember the F then, yep. because yeah, he he comes in and uh, and plays a, a significant role here as well. So, um, and I just have to say that um, the idea just it just sounds so pleasant between the government and the church, just working hand in hand, and we change this and then that, and that was not the reality of that statement. I mean, it was a very difficult time and, you know, polygamy, and they were in so much trouble for polygamy. I don't think people realize what the government was basically shutting everything down. Yeah. And they're, to save their own skin, they had to receive the revelation and change everything and then try to kind of hide the money here and there. So, yeah, it's it's not all friendly with the government at all, as and, usual. And uh, the, uh, there were... Uh people getting uh, set to back to the government that the government wouldn't seat because they were polygamous. Uh, if you remember, there were testimonies being done in Congress where they were lying to the, yeah. uh, to, to the Congress as they were doing that. So uh, again, polygamy did not end as agreed to in 1890, as they talk about in their, you know, they don't make any mention of the second manifesto, which was needed because the, uh, First presidency was not honest uh, in their dealings with with the government and what they were doing. So, um, okay, let's go to the next one, and we're we're, we're not quite done with those paragraphs because they're going to come back to to haunt us again. Haunt us, uh, yes. Okay, <laughs> <clears throat> let's continue. Uh, between 1915 and 1959, annual reports of the church's income and expenditures were announced in general conference. These reports showed that most funds were directed to ward and stake buildings, headquarters, office buildings, church schools, missions, and welfare. After 1959, auditors presented in general conference only the results of an annual general audit, assuring the public that leaders had followed financial responsibility, the procedures, and dealt honestly in their use of the church funds. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to make a face right there. Wasn't professional. <clears throat> uh, deficit spending on the church's ambitious international program of constructing ward and stake buildings during the 1960s drained church accounts. 
N. Eldon Tanner, formerly a business professional, was called to the first presidency in 1963 and introduced strict budgetary controls on church operations. He outlined a financial plan that encouraged building a surplus, maintaining a strict budget, and spending from reserves. Within a short period, the church was able to meet its operational budgets and pay its debts. This improved financial condition allowed the church to more effectively support many aspects of its mission. For example, since the early 1900s, local wards and stakes had operated their budgets through a mixture of local donations and tithing funds. In 1990, the Council on the Disposition of the Tithes announced, what is that acronym? C-O-T-D-O-T-T, -T -T, <laughs> uh, announced that all operating expenses of local units would be paid from the general tithing funds. The following year, a consolidated missionary fund allowed the monthly expenses of full-time missionary service to be equalized across missions. Okay, that was actually, to me, a, a great thing that they did when they when they did that. I remember that happening. I remember, uh, you know, if you were called to Japan, it was like $1,000 a month that your family had to pay. And if you were called to Guatemala, it was like, you know, $100. Or 50 uh, so cents. <laughs> it ended up that the rich kids all went to the Japan and the poor kids all went to Guatemala. Uh, so I, I felt that that was really a good thing when they did that in, in the 90s. But uh, want to go back up to those top paragraphs. There's several things here that we want to cover. Uh, remember early on in, in the discussion, I said that the church never added anything. Uh, they never did, you know, added a, a report or took away a report unless there was a purpose. So 1832 to, to 1838 was the first time they did the report. Uh, 1837 is when the Kirtland Bank failed. And the church was completely uh, in disarray, so they stopped reporting. Uh, then the, se the second uh, uh, time that they did it was uh, when John Taylor took over, and that went right up until the anti-polygamy laws took effect and all the church property was being confiscated. So they, again, stopped reporting so that nobody knew that all their property was being uh, taken away and I guess they probably didn't want the feds to know how much property they had, so it couldn't be taken away. So now we come to 1915, and they make a big deal out of this, that between 1915 and 1959, they did audit. Like, well, we did do it during this time frame. Well, if it was so good then, why don't we do it now? But uh, there's a reason that they started reporting in 1915, and there's a reason they stopped reporting in 1959. The reason they stopped reporting in 1959 is told in the paragraph right there. Deficit spending on the church's ambitious international program of constructing warden state buildings drained church accounts. That happened in 1960. The church was almost near bankruptcy, and so they stopped reporting again. <laughs> Whenever they get in a financial problem, they stop reporting. They don't want the members to know. It's kind of like other churches share the good news. We refuse to share the bad news yeah. at all. That's a, <laughs> nothing, that's exactly nothing to see right. here. <laughs> and so they put they put in charge N. Eldon Tanner, uh, and he started to, he was this business professional who started this program to build the church's money back up, all while not being reported. <laughs> 
And you brought up uh, earlier when we were talking, you brought up uh, what happened. Uh, in fact, it said uh, uh, it was called to the first presidency in 1963. And do you remember what came out in 1963? Yeah, this is actually very interesting. So this is the time period where tithing became the thing. And my parents were married in 1963 and their whole life tithing was just it. It was hammered into us. It was the principle that we followed. The reason this was such an important part of people of that age's life is because in 1963, the church and the first presidency um, had a movie made, The Windows of Heaven. You guys have probably all seen it. Hollywood director, huge budget, wonderful story of paying tithing and the windows of heaven will open. Well, the story is, I won't say completely fabricated, but I'll say highly, highly, highly embellished and Okay, completely fabricated. Anyway, if you'd like to know the true story behind the windows of heaven, um, there's a channel called Mormon Media Reviews where they kind of mystery science theater go through the different you know movies and and tell the facts and the backstory. So maybe we'll put that in the link. But but that movie um, was very pivotal in getting people of that generation to really take tithing seriously. And I think a lot of you may, you know, my parents are in their eighties and that was them their whole life. They paid and paid and told us to pay, you know, so that is really where that came from is that era of a, a huge push for tithing. And the flagship of that was this wonderful movie, the windows of heaven that probably most of you have seen. I remember being hauled in as a, in, as a primary child, they took us to the stake center to see that movie uh in the 70s so it absolutely was uh uh that that was what we grew up on was tithing oh, yeah. tithing tithing and and so that's how the church got back into uh uh the positive area again was that that focus on tithing and and then uh, obviously some uh, uh business practices but uh the the interesting part of this paragraph isn't so much what happened in 1960 but what happened in 1915 to make them start reporting. So uh, this is really quite fascinating. Um, it's called the Utah-Idaho uh, uh, Sugar Company uh, that antitrust investigation. <laughs> what happened, uh, this is quite fascinating, is the church er early on when they moved into Utah, they were trying to find a way to raise money or an industry that they could do. And so they uh, sugar was a big big thing. But back in that time, you know, you had to go to the Bahamas and get sugar cane, but they found that, hey, we could raise this sugar beets in the interior of the country. And we could, uh, they were, I think in France, they found a way to get sugar out of sugar beets. And so they said, oh, this seems promising. And so they went and they started this sugar industry. And Brigham Young had, uh, I think it was John Taylor to start developing sugar beets in Sugar House. And, uh, he, he wasn't very successful, and Brigham Young was very, very mean to John Taylor when he couldn't get sugar out of the sugar beets. And uh, uh, so they kept pushing it and pushing it, and finally they learned how to get sugar uh, out of sugar beets. And this whole sugar beet industry grew up in Utah, supported by the church. And it was kind of, uh, they so the church owned this company called the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company. And so as the owning company of it. Um, Joseph F. Smith was the president and the CEO of the company as the president of the church. And so uh, it 
was kind of a subsidiary of American sugar. And it turned out that American sugar and Utah, Idaho sugar were working together to keep the price of sugar beets down. Um, since they were manufacturing the, the sugar and selling the sugar, the more the, the lower the price of the sugar beets was, the more profit that they were making off of the sugar, which is amazing when you consider who were the sugar beet farmers. It was the members members of the church were the sugar beet farmers. <laughs> so these poor people are poor farmers putting the sugar beets in the ground. The church is working to keep the price of the sugar beets down. You're not making as much money. And then on top of it, you're paying tithing to the church that owns the sugar beet factory that's that's keeping you down. But of course, Nobody complains because it's the church that's uh, that that's doing it, and so it's all for a good cause, you know. Uh, but uh, th this in 1911, this investigation starts, and it starts uh, uh, heating up over time. Uh, and eventually, uh, Floyd T. Jackson of the Department of Justice filed a complaint charging the Utah Idaho Company of profiteering and obtaining undue, exorbitant, immoderate excessive and monstrous profits on sugar. Merrill Nibley, Charles Nibley's son, where did we get Charles Nibley? He no, was the bishop a couple bishop. slides ago yeah. that was brought in as one of the businessmen to uh, help uh, bring the church out of, uh, out of its poverty. Uh, vice president and system manager of the company was arrested the company embarked on a propaganda campaign in the Utah market. The Idaho Division of the Department of Justice filed charges against the company on June 10th, 1920, specifically charging Heber J. Grant, Charles W. Nibley, and Thomas R. Cutler, among others. Warrants for their arrest was issued on June 21st, 1920. <laughs> Okay, let's step back here again. Uh, okay, we need to we, count again. We and count again. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph F. Smith was the president of the company at this time. He was called in to testify in Congress. He refused to come in. He had to be arraigned to, and forced to testify in this trial. And then Heber J. Grant and Charles Nibley, the two people they brought in to bring the church out of its, uh, out of its economic problems in the very essay they're writing about how did they do it they were doing antitrust uh they, they were doing illegal business practices now you know the church will argue oh there was never they were never you know put in jail or anything what ended up happening was they ended up kind of breaking up the company the owner died during the investigation of american sugar the church was forced to sell some pieces and American sugar had to sell some pieces and they worked it out uh, based on breaking it up a little bit. Church did maintain control of the Utah Idaho sugar company and, and ran it until 1980. But again, we're right back to, are these the men that we can trust with the sacred funds of the church? We're right back to jo now where Joseph F. Smith is in, in legal problems. Heber J. Grant has a, a warrant for his arrest out. We, we, I don't think we've had a prophet yet that's not been in trouble with the law up not to yet. 1920. <laughs> the quorum of the 12 most wanted, right? It's not just 10 <laughs> most wanted. We may need, we may need to re, re, rename that. So, 
just fascinating as I as I started investigating some of these uh, some of these problems. So, uh, okay, let's go on then. I think we're closing this in. Our uh, last paragraph, I think um, it is, isn't uh, it? Second yes, to last. I think this is the last paragraph. The last paragraph. Here we go. All right. I hope everyone's still hanging in there with us. This is so <laughs> fascinating. You just you can't make this up. I you cannot make this up. All right. Here we go. Um, after decades of surplus spending and careful planning, the faithful contributions of LDS saints resulted in the church building significant reserves, much of which church leaders reinvested saved for future needs or used for humanitarian and urban renewal projects around the world. Beginning in 2013, the church produced an annual report detailing its spending on humanitarian efforts. In 2019, church president Russell M. Nelson directed the merger of the corporation of the presiding bishop and the corporation of the president, and the resulting corporation was renamed the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That same year, the First Presidency reiterated their commitment to using sacred church funds wisely. We take seriously the responsibility to care for the tithes and donations received from members. The vast majority of these funds are used immediately to meet the needs of the growing church, including more meeting houses, temples, education, humanitarian work, and missionary efforts throughout the world okay um sir to, to build significant reserves boy is that the understatement of the century um yeah. you know more more reserves than most uh, countries have uh <laughs> in reserves um but uh there's a couple of things in here where they you know they kind of say what they're using those reserves for and they were used for humanitarian and urban renewal projects around the world. It sounds like urban renewal projects around the world, like they're building, you know, wells in Africa or, uh, you know, villages for uh, uh, poor nations. Um, that's, that doesn't seem to be what they're doing with, with the money. Um, if we look at what they're doing with the money, this is uh, uh, the, this is the report that they, that they talked about for humanitarian aid. And we see some fishy things going on. This has been brought up several times on a lot of the things that have come out recently. But from 1985 to 2015, the church reported that they had spent $2.3 billion in charity. So over a 30-year period, they spent $2.3 billion in charity. Last year, they reported that they had given $1 billion in charity. So they almost gave half as much in one year as they had in the previous 30 years. But if we break that down, um, and this comes from the Widow Might report, we see that only 80 to $115 million of that is really given to any humanitarian aid outside of the church. The remaining 800 to $850 million is all internal to the church welfare. And that includes the, the the labor that when you go clean the church, they get they give that a dollar value and say, oh, that you're doing that you're doing humanitarian aid by cleaning the toilets at the church. 
Uh, do, we know, do we know what salary or what hourly rate they attribute to? Are they saying each person $20 an hour? So if you go clean the church for four hours on a Saturday and they say $20 an hour, is that the amount of money? They're actually putting it into a monetary value and claiming that as humanitarian aid. Is that what you're saying? Uh, that That's how they're somehow monetizing it. And I don't know okay. what, what amount they're using for that, because obviously they don't give us any numbers that we can really use. Do they count missionary work? They count because missionary work imagine, as well. I mean, think so about I it. Know how much 24 they, seven. If it's $20 yeah. <laughs> an hour for every missionary, I mean, that's there's the whole fund. And that's why you see the giving went up so much because they saw that, oh, we've got these billions of dollars. We now need to look like we're giving away billions of dollars. And so they started counting your labor, my labor, whoever is, is donating to the church. They're starting to count that as actual donations. And in reality, they're, the, the dollars that they're giving is, is much less than what they're really showing. So again, they're kind of, uh, you know, hiding the numbers uh, as they're so uh, prone to do. The other thing they said is that they're doing urban renewal projects. Well, here's a, some examples of the urban renewal projects that they're doing. The City Creek Center, uh, which anyone who's been to Salt Lake knows that it's right across the street from Temple Square. You can see the church administrative building right from inside City Creek. Um, the, the, the picture here on the bottom left is of a renewed housing development. And you see right in the background is the Mesa Temple. So they, they redid the housing all around the Mesa Temple to make the the property value of the Mesa Temple go up. Uh, the, the, temp, the picture there on the left is a high-rise building, uh, a high-rise luxury apartment complex next to the Philadelphia Temple. Um, so again, another project that is made to increase the value of the properties that they own. So to call those urban renewal projects, in every case that we see urban renewal, it seems to be to profit the church and to increase the value of their own properties. We aren't seeing them. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure they maybe do some small projects, but the majority of the big dollar items that we're seeing, this is what they're doing with the money. And we all know what happened with City Creek, where uh, we were told that uh, no tithing funds were spent, uh, which again is some of their legal words. Uh, then they want to say, no, it was off of the uh, you know, increase from the, the tithing interest funds. of tithing. I still can't understand how that's even used. That's and uh, and that's crazy. why when we go back to that 2019 statement, they don't make any indication when they say that. Oh, in 2019, the church said this. Well, they made that statement uh, two days after the whistleblower came out and said, "Hey, they have a hundred and something billion dollars." And then the church came out and made that statement. So they, they don't make any me mention of a whistleblower coming out and, and forcing them to make that statement. They make it say sound as if, oh, they just came out and said, so we need to believe them. So if we take that whistleblower's complaint and it went back to basically President Hinckley's uh, uh, presidency. So we've got President Hinckley's presidency was involved with that. President Monson's. Presidency was involved with that. President Nelson's uh, presidency was involved with that. We've got another three presidents of the church involved with some shenanigans with not telling the truth to the government. So 
there's only been 17 presidents of the church. A couple of them, like, only only were there nine months, you know. <laughs> uh, how many of them are, are have been in trouble with with the government with lying or not being truthful to the government? We're we're up to at least eight, nine at this point. And not yet, a great percentage. Not it a great isn't percentage. A great percentage. And, and when you say you know they had knowledge, it wasn't just knowledge, as we saw in the SEC, like actively you know trying to find a ways to manipulate, um, going along with it decade after decade after decade. It wasn't just maybe turning a blind eye. I know what someone else is doing. No, they were they were the driving force behind it. I think that's what the SEC ruling and fine has shown us. And and perhaps is only the tip of the iceberg. I think we'll find out probably more than we already know so it's yep i i very think so shocking. i i think so and i it, it it's just amazing to me that uh you know the church comes out with an essay that basically says trust us we've always been honest we've always dealt truthfully in church finances when we see that they they haven't they they've almost never been truthful <laughs> with church finances they've almost always deceived the members with what they're doing with church finances and they've almost never used it for humanitarian or good purposes as they try to teach in every lesson that you have you know you hear about all the wonderful things they're doing with the money and in almost every case yes they're building beautiful buildings which okay if you want to say that that's a humanitarian cause or a charitable cause because you're saving humankind Okay, if that's what you want to say, you know, you're free to say that, but we can see that they're earthquake proofing these buildings, they're they're continually putting money into those buildings and that money is not going to help people. It's going to help buildings, it's going to help institutions, it's going to help companies. It's not getting to the people. And so when they say trust us with your finances, we we just can't take it arbitrarily and say they're called they're men called of God we can trust them because it's been proven over and over again that these men are not trustworthy with your money and they're not going to be transparent and they are not going to report to you how they spend this money and if you want to say they don't have to that's fine but you know it 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 seems like they should do better uh, with the Lord's money. And I would think the Lord would want them to be more transparent to the people as to how the Lord decides to spend his money. So. That, that sounds like a mic drop moment right there for Landon. <laughs> you can all tell that this is a real passion project for him. I mean, there was a lot of work that went into all the background on this. I don't think I've ever seen anything like this before, where it's all in one place, taking it through from the very beginning and dissecting this essay. So absolutely a passion project. Landon feels very strongly about this, don't you? <laughs> well, the, the church said, this is closed. And yeah. we're saying, no, it's open. That's right. <laughs> We, we do we, not, we're not you need a t-shirt that says, we do not consider this matter closed. Like you should be sitting there wearing that right now. Well, and it isn't closed. And there are other things to talk about. Um, you brought up, you know, spending the money and the earthquake proofing the temple. And we um, 
kind of came across some plans for that whole Temple Square area that have kind of been circulating out there. And it's massive and massively expensive, almost with a, a people are saying a theme park feel to it. So we are going to do an episode pretty soon here where we kind of go through some of the plans that may be in play. And I have a feeling that they may even make some announcements at conference. I wonder about what's coming, a big change to Temple Square, even including a new name to Temple Square. Um, all this is kind of uh, kind of out there that people are talking about. So um, we'll be doing that episode coming up in the next little while. And then speaking of conference, we are also going to be releasing an episode, um, again, out there data mining, uh, conference rumors. <laughs> we we have hundreds of people that have, have given us uh, things that they think might happen. Some are just crazy far-fetched. Others actually seem like it might have some insider information. So we'll be putting that out there um, pretty soon. So if you would like your conference prediction or rumor included, just comment um, on this video after you watch after on this episode and, and we'll see if we can include it. But I think that'll be interesting. So well, thank you everybody for sticking with us. I think this was important. I think a lot of us didn't even know that that essay had been released. I think most of us didn't know because it was very subtle. So thank you to Landon for coming across it and to dissecting the whole thing and helping us understand it with a lot of clarity, a little humor, but you know, I think we all came away from the episode going, this is you know, exactly par for the course, right? It's not just happening now. It happened a few decades ago. It happened a century ago. It continues to happen. So thank you, Landon, for all of that. And I guess we'll say goodbye for Mormonish. Um, please like and subscribe. Hit the notification bell to get notified if you'd like to see more episodes. And please comment. We would love to hear what you thought of the essay. If you were aware of it before, um, comment on some of the different sections that we read, um, information that you may have that we don't. We would absolutely love to keep this essay in the forefront to bring it out to the public more so that people can read it and kind of understand more what's going on. So any last thoughts, Landon? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think, I think I've hit it all. It was, it, it was fun to, to study this subject and I couldn't believe, I, you know, all I do is look at some of the words they'd say and I'd say, oh, I'd like to research that. And it would just blow my mind what I found as I started studying it. Uh, so once you learn how to read their their releases and how they word things, uh, they pretty much just point you to all the problems with the church. You can just highlight them and say, oh, I wonder what that's about. And they'll, they'll point the way right to you. So, And then, like you said, mind blown again, mind blown. right? So thank you all for joining us for this mind blowing experience. And we will see you next time on Mormonish. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.